My name is Alec Cowan, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. The effects of the October 1st mass shooting in Las Vegas weren't just localized to the city's inhabitants. Trauma and loss spreads, leaping states in a rapid echo of the gunfire. Communities in California, Alaska, Minnesota, West Virginia, and even Canada lost loved ones. The crippling effects of violence even reached as far as the University of Oregon's campus. And it's had a lasting effect on one student as she searched for a way to connect with her home in a time of tragedy. to go give blood um, to support Vegas and after everything that's happened from the shootings about a week ago. Um, Being from Vegas, I just feel like this is the only thing I can really do, being so far from home. So yeah, I feel fine. I've given blood a few times before this, so I just, I'm kind of excited just to be able to support my city and do the only thing I can really do being 600 miles away. The 20-year-old accounting major is from Las Vegas, Nevada. More accurately, she's from the nearby suburb of Henderson. It's a 15-minute drive from the Vegas Strip. This is where a 64-year-old white male gunman opened fire from a window on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino Hotel Room. He fired into a crowd of 22,000 concert goers on October 1st. The shooter had modified a semi-automatic weapon to shoot like a machine gun, and below the barrel, the Route 91 Harvest Festival was in full swing. 489 were injured, 58 lost their lives. It's been, it was difficult. Um, It got easier as the days went on, Um, but it was really hard just to be able to like, think about it, having it impact somebody I went to school with, um, and like I used to see every day. It's been difficult to try to just cope with that. But yeah, so that's been kind of difficult just to kind of come to terms with that and know that I'm not going to see him when I go home or like at any of the different events that we have for my high school. Um, It's gotten a lot easier as the weeks progressed because um, it's kind of just had to because of like school and midterms and things um and being so far away it hasn't I haven't had the opportunity to really dwell on it which has been nice um it's kind of helped me at least Katie had just gone to bed on Sunday evening when she saw it the first warning popping up on her Twitter feed in vague surreal words it read hi everyone there's an active shooter on the strip so just be careful if you're in the area Katie was terrified I was laying in my bed I was just trying to go to sleep and then I was like, oh, I can't sleep. I'll get on social media. And one of my friends posted, there's an active shooter on the strip. Everybody be safe. So I immediately texted my brother and he said he was safe. And I just kept reloading my feed and another person would say something. Then another person would say something. And then I just spent the entire, like, I spent like an hour and a half just retweeting things, like trying to make sure people were okay, getting on Facebook. And I was going in between social medias all night, just trying to make sure 
that everything was fine and then in class all day Monday I was just on my phone checking and making sure that like people were okay and just trying to be there for people even though I'm so far away which has been really difficult. On Monday afternoon Katie saw the news she feared since the first tweet hit her feed. This time it came from a Facebook post. Her high school classmate 20 year old Quentin Robbins was fatally shot in the attack. Post and I, I just broke down and I like spent all of Monday like crying and I wasn't really good friends with him but like I said he's like such a prominent person that like you knew like we knew that oh I'll see him at like I'll see him around as soon as I get back home like he's always around I'm really involved like at my high school he's involved in high school so I was like oh I'll see him like no problem and then like I'm not gonna see him and so it's been really difficult just to, like come to terms with that. 900 miles from home, Katie watched from afar as her friends prepared for Robin's funeral. So it's been difficult and like seeing everything on social media of all my friends also like struggling. People are going back in their yearbooks and like reading what he wrote in those. And like Quentin was just such a great guy. Um, It's really hard to like think about going to our high school reunion in a few years and him not being there. She watched as violent details of the shooting were disseminated in news coverage. The Las Vegas shooter's face was on every major news site or broadcast. Videos of concert goers running from spraying gunfire were uploaded to social media and played repeatedly on national television. So it's been difficult and like hearing the gunshots is like very real because I've been to a concert at that venue. I have walked that street at least once or twice a year every year for like my entire life. So. It's very interesting seeing the space and, like, understanding, like, how far it really is and, like, being impacted by just understanding it because a lot of times for, like, other things, you see the videos, but you don't really know the area unless you've been there and, like, that's my home. So I know exactly, like, where he was looking and I've stayed in a room at the Mandalay Bay, so I, like, know that view and I can just, like, it's, so, like, it hits hard and it's hard kind of to watch those. And just know that, like, a lot of people have died from it and, like, have been injured. Yeah, my brother works for Mandalay Bay, so he was working the event and got off an hour early right before it happened. Um, And then I had about 20 or 30 friends who were at the event at the time of the shooting. So it was very close to home. And like I said, being so far away, like, giving blood's the only thing I can do. Katie watched as the Las Vegas community poured into the local blood banks to donate. It's really cool to see how the entire communities come together. Like, blood, I, all my friends were trying to give blood, and they are just getting appointments like next week because all the blood banks are full. And then yeah. there's so much support happening. It's really great to see. Casey Zerby, the program manager for public engagement at the local donation center Lane Bloodworks, says that spikes in donations are common after tragedies and disasters. It gives communities a sense of control and action, especially when disaster hits close to home. So there was a huge response from the community. Um, we saw, so we normally see about 45 to 50 donors a day. And in the after Las Vegas, we were seeing about 80 plus a day. So it was about a 50% increase in daily amounts of donors, which is huge. So it was, it was really profound. 
one of the 12 donor centers in the Northwest, Lane Bloodworks is part of a network that spans north to Bellingham, Washington. The centers require about 800 donations a day to supply 900 hospitals. They've been standing by to send supplies to Las Vegas since October 2nd, but so far, the extra blood hasn't been needed in Las Vegas. The interesting um, angle to that is that when there is a tragedy, and we, we never know when a tragedy is going to occur, right? That's part of the part of the problem is that it's the blood that's already on the shelves that saves the lives. So if you were to donate blood right now, it would have to be tested and processed and it wouldn't be ready to be transfused to a patient for at least 24 hours. So when um, when something like that, like these large scale events that are really tragic and there's a lot of people in critical care and people are donating in that, you know, in response to it, we are obviously supportive and welcome those those responses. But we do really encourage people to donate on like a regular old Tuesday when there's not something going on because it's in it's it we never know when that's gonna happen. And to be able to say to respond to large scale tragedies, we need to have the blood on the shelves. Blood banks and hospitals depend on everyday donations to prepare for the worst. Yeah, so the way that blood banks work in the United States is since we're all regulated by the FDA, we can share resources with each other. So if something happens here, we can get resources from other communities and then vice versa. Like we responded to Harvey, to Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma. We sent actually with natural disaster, with hurricanes, I should say, it's different because you can kind of see the hurricane coming. And especially in the case of Harvey, they said, you know, guys, this is going to make landfall within a day. Can you send the blood now? So in that case, yes, we, we um, it's actually really, that's one side of, the business, of this industry that's really cool. Um, the blood gets packed in this really specific way so that it stays, you know, with the right temperature. And then it does actually get sent uh, via air. So it goes in the, in the cargo hold. And it's, it's just really... Um, it's one of the things I love most about my job is seeing the way that the whole, you know, the whole system works and how we can support communities that seem really far away, but that there's this already this system that's worked out that allows us to respond. Blood centers need a regular influx of donors to keep up with high demand for the life-saving liquid. Blood donation's been around as a, um, you know, as a community effort since, mostly since World War II. That's kind of when it took off. And at this point, we have, you know, closing in on 100 years of history to kind of look back and say, what, what, is this, what does this look like? What do we need? You know, who's, what, what are this different, what's the differences between the seasons and um, how, do we, how do we have what the community, how do we stock what the community needs? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, one of our medical directors says you're always thinking three days down the line because you're, you are dealing with perishable product, so you can't. You know, you have to keep that in mind, but you are always anticipating the future. And what we estimate is, so there's this giant math problem that looks at how many people live in the, each community, what what time of year is it, what is the history of, you know, car accidents or emergency room visits or whatever it is at that time in, in of the year. And it's this big algorithm that we use to determine how much blood needs to be at each hospital at each, you know, every day. Mm-hmm. So what we say is a, a safe blood supply is three to five days worth of blood for the, the community that that hospital is situated in. Once it's collected and tested, blood is separated into three different products, each with their own best medical purpose. 
Zerbi says that means that a person can save three lives with only one donation. Blood is perishable, so um, it's not something we think about, but it is perishable, you know, like produce, for example. So platelets are are um, what's used in, for example, when those folks were initially in, wounded in cases of trauma, plate, platelets are what stop internal bleeding. So, um, and those those go bad within three to five days. So they're really, it's a really quick turnover. Um, so those, those, that product needs to get to the patient that it needs to go to quickly. And that means that we are always looking for platelet donors. Um, so, so there's that. So platelets are, you know, really, really perishable, also really critical. There's no substitute for human blood. There just isn't. So if somebody needs a blood product, they need a blood product. There's nothing else you can give them that will, that will satisfy mm-hmm. that need in their body. On October 11th, Katie added her pint of blood to hundreds more given at Lane Bloodworks in the wake of the shooting. But Katie isn't a one-time donor. It's something she does regularly, and she says it's the least she can do. Students are so vital to blood donation. I really can't emphasize it enough. Um, Starting in high school, so in the state of of Oregon, you can donate at the age of 16. So um, it's one of the I think it's something that's really empowering that students might not know. You know, as a teenager, you're a lot of times told what you can and can't do. It's very regulated. You know, you have a lot of authority in your life kind of telling you what you what you do, what you can and can't do. But there's a lot of power in blood donation. You know, it, it's free. You don't need to pay anything, but you can save someone's life. And there's not really anything else that you can say at 16 years old that you can do to save someone's life, right? I mean, you could grow up, you could, you know, go into a career in paramedics or medicine, you know, different aspects of medicine, but something that you can do right now today is, is donate blood. So in the U.S., I would say that, so high school and college donations, I mean, they make up a lion's share of, of, of the blood supply that takes care of this country. So it's, um, it's incredibly important. It's easy, I think, to feel overwhelmed in this day and age. We have a lot of access to information. We have a lot of access to stories of people who are suffering and people who, are, who really need our help. Um, you know, when you're a young person, you may not have the financial means to contribute to all the different, you know, fundraising efforts that are out there. But like I said, there's no substitute for our blood. That's the only way that we can help somebody who needs that is to give. The Las Vegas shooting comes exactly two years after nine people were fatally shot at nearby Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon. This occurred on October 1st, 2015. In Katie's first weeks as a freshman, the tragedy shook UO's campus. After the UCC shooting, Lane Bloodworks had donors line up at its doors. Yeah, everybody's been impacted by it in some capacity. Just being at the school, I mean, that was the first week of my freshman year. And I remember I had people calling me and I was impacted by it even though I didn't know anybody. So just being on this campus and being in such proximity that's why I think that it would be, this is the best place, if any, to have this kind of conversation because we're bringing people from all over the nation. And we had, like, Umqua. And yeah, I feel like we really have enough people here to really build a support system that could be beneficial for everyone. 
The UCC shooting could still be impacting students on this campus, according to Lori Schantz, journalism instructor at the SOJC. In 2015, she partnered with journalism professor Nicole Dahman to examine how local journalists covered the UCC shooting in the reporting Roseburg project. As part of continued research, Schantz is returning to communities in Oregon where shootings occurred and is speaking with community members about their experiences since. She says that people who have been affected by a shooting often experience a, quote, recurring trauma, unquote, when another mass shooting occurs. As part of her research, Shantz will reach out to people who experienced the 1998 shooting at Thurston High School in Springfield. Well, there's another piece of this, too, which is the recurring trauma of someone who's been through one of those things. Right. There was a school shooting in Clackamas not that long ago. Mm -hmm. We have students on this campus who were at UCC when that shooting happened. Right. Um, part of my continuing research on reporting Roseburg is going back to the community and saying, what was that like for you? That we interviewed the journalist, now I am going back to talk to people on the other side of it, which is work that I've been slowly building toward. But part of what I'm going to do is talk to people from Thurston High School who were involved in that coverage when that was 1998, before Columbine, before this became quite the national piece. And, you know, I went back and looked at anniversary stories, and there are people who every time there's another shooting, they remember the first shooting, or they see that. So there is kind of this, this effect that it is affecting more people who have lived through that, who have done something. In 1966, a sniper climbed a clock tower and killed 13 people at the University of Texas, Austin. Since then, there have been 131 instances of mass shootings, defined by the Washington Post as a lone gunman killing four or more people. That's about two per year. Mass shootings have become a regular occurrence in America. Kitty has experienced a strange silence at UO's campus since the Las Vegas shooting, and it has Kitty worried that mass shootings are becoming normalized, and the campus desensitized. I think the fact that these things are happening and we don't feel the need to talk about them anymore is kind of oh, like, this is becoming too normal in our society. The fact that, like, I mean, I remember, like, when the Virginia Tech things, like, I mean, I think I was in, like, elementary school or middle school, but everybody was talking about it because it still wasn't a normal thing or even, like, Sandy Hook, like, other shootings, mass shootings that have happened, everybody was talking about them. And, like, this was, like, a record-setting mass murder, and it's silent up here, which I find very interesting at the fact that people don't feel the need or the shock to like bring it up yeah. in classes. Or... Katie is a resident assistant at Earl Hall. Other than her close friends and Hall residents who knew Katie's hometown had been victimized, nobody approached Katie to ask if her family and loved ones were okay. None of her professors spoke about it. The university didn't contact her. Among the everyday chatter of campus life, silence about the Las Vegas shooting hung around Katie in a vacuum but she'd like to see more open conversations and peer-to-peer -peer support on campus. I think being able to have like an area that we can really have that open kind of conversation about it because it's really hard. Like if I didn't have the people in my hall, I would only have my friends. And like, I don't know a lot of people from Las Vegas here. There's not a whole lot of us. So it's like having a place that we can all come together and like have discussions because just because it happened in Vegas doesn't mean it doesn't impact people here. Um, and like something couldn't happen somewhere else. And I think that'd be really important to have that kind of space to be, <laughs> to be able to talk about that and not feel like people have to put up a face necessarily and have a specific stance, but we can really be open. It doesn't always help to talk to professionals. Maybe you so, want to talk to your peers. Yeah, really see how people like my age are feeling about this and 
like coping with it because like the person I know who died like he graduated with me we're the exact same age he was going to school so it could have been anybody on this campus as well it's not so separated because we're all like finally to that age where like these things happen and it doesn't always help to talk to somebody who's 10 years older than us but Sean says not everyone may be ready to talk. Maybe they just go, need to go in a hole and be quiet, right? People process in a lot of different ways. It's hard to be everything to all people. Mm-hmm. But I think an increased awareness of psychological health and how this routine um, always being on and always getting on the news is, is part of it. Um, you know, the mass shooting that I helped to cover happened in Pittsburgh, and I actually did interviews for it from the church of my best friend from high school's wedding at her rehearsal because I was maid of honor and I was making phone calls about this literally from the pastor's office. And um, one of the scenes of the shooting was a shopping center that was fairly close to my apartment. And about a week later, my parents were out to eat and they had said they were going to meet me out to eat and they went to an Applebee's that was in that shopping center and I couldn't go there. I just could not go to that Applebee's. I could not go to that shopping center. It took me, I'm not convinced I ever went to that Applebee's again. And I was only involved in it from making phone calls and thinking about what had happened. So that's a difficult place. It's not, there's not one size fits all for all of this. Shantz's research into how journalists cover mass shootings is partly in response to evidence that shootings can incite further violence. And the media response is partly to blame. But there is an increasing amount of research that is showing that the need for attention is part of what's driving this and the the media fuels that it's especially fueled when you know every news organization tweets a picture of the of the perpetrator along with the news story when the headline is everywhere when it's on television 24 7 if that's what people want the need media needs to examine what we do and say, do we need to change? of the coverage is something else that spurred Nicole and me. That one of the things we watched on video when we were at that in, um, experience engagement conf- conference was Obama saying, somehow this has become routine. And he pounded his hand on the lectern or wherever he was. And there is a routine. And when something does become a routine, it becomes normal. So there's absolutely some sort of level of that, right? And the pieces of the routine that Nicole and I found from the interviews were kind of unbelievable. There is someone at the Washington Post. Part of her job description is that when a mass shooting happens, she immediately calls the town and books hotel rooms because she knows that so many journalists are going to go to the town that you have to get a room fast or your reporters aren't, photographers aren't going to have anywhere to sleep. Really? That's part of somebody's job? That they've learned to do that. There's also a narrative of the coverage, right? That it happens, it gets on Twitter, people understandably freak out. There's some names, they may or not be right. There's some photos, they may or not be right. There's the immediate happen, and then you turn to the what happened in the classroom or the mall or the movie theater story, which is very graphic, and which all of the reporters who do those stories tell you, this is because we want people to understand how horrible it is, and that's part of what we do. Do we really know what happened? How many of those pieces of that narrative turn out to be true? Um, It's hard to report quickly on that deadline. Are those stories, do those stories have value? Do they have value on day two or day three? What happens next? Eventually names of victims are released and then there are funerals and then there are political pieces. So there is 
there is a pattern to it. There's a pattern to everything we cover as journalists. There's a city hall pattern. There's a sports mm-hmm. pattern. There's an arts pattern. But when there's a when the, when matters of public safety are at stake, maybe we need to pull that apart a little bit. After experiencing the devastation a mass shooting wrought on her home, Katie wants to see firearms examined and addressed by lawmakers. My views definitely got a lot more. Like we don't need the kinds of guns he had, and I understand the argument that he obtained a few of them illegally, and if they're going to get the guns, they're going to get the guns no matter what the laws are. However, I think that there's a lot more that we can do, more knowledge that can be given out about these things. Um, like nobody in there, nobody should have like 40 guns, like semi-automatic guns or. There's no need for that for hunting purposes or anything. Kitty was in ROTC during high school and on the rifle team. She's not someone who's ever been against guns, and she's still not. But her perspective has shifted. It was good. Um, they were really, like, efficient. But it felt really nice just to be able to kind of do something to help even though they, obviously nobody there kind of understood why I was giving blood, it was nice just like internally to understand like that I was actually helping and knowing that this blood is also in the network to really have an impact on like if it's needed in Vegas, like this center can send it there. So it was really nice to feel connected. Yep. Primary reporting for this story was done by Emily Goodykunz, with additional reporting done by me, Alec Cowan. Music featured in this episode was Leaving by Severin, Ambient One by Severin, and Ambient Peace One by Abishai. You can subscribe to the Emerald Podcast Network on iTunes and SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts, and you can stream them directly from the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thank you for listening.